Okay. So uh, this is a very daunting section of scripture. I want to make a few comments on the chapters that lead up to it before we get into this itself. In Matthew chapter 23, 24 and 25, Jesus gives his last sermon of the five large sermons that he gives in the book of Matthew. And these sermons, this particular sermon that starts in the temple and continues with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, harkens back to the first sermon. Notice there's mention of lamps, and that comes up in the first sermon. The first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with Beatitudes. We didn't read it tonight, but this sermon begins with nine woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. So those woes balance out the Beatitudes that begin it. So there's several things that harken back to that first sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus is like Jeremiah. If you remember the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah's job was to go to Judah and Jerusalem and say to them, because of all of our sins, because we have failed to keep God's law, God is sending the Babylonians. They are going to tear Jerusalem down. They're going to tear the temple to the ground and they're going to take us into captivity. You can imagine Jeremiah didn't sell a lot of sermons. He didn't get a lot of downloads on iTunes. All right, this was not a popular message, but it was the truth. In love, God sent Jeremiah to his people. And in this last sermon, that's precisely what Jesus is doing. He's sitting on a hill, eventually, opposite Jerusalem, and declaring the judgment that is coming upon them. In love, in hope that they will repent, but most of all, to prepare his disciples. So he's a new Jeremiah. And I want you to consider that these nine woes are the last public thing Jesus says in Jerusalem. Now remember, last week we talked about the parable that God Jesus killed. After that parable, Jesus then turns from all these leaders to the crowds and says, Woe to them, these scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He does it nine times in front of all the people. Can you understand why Jesus was crucified? He declares their hypocrisy. He declares their hardness of heart. He declares their desire to be impressive with people outwardly, but inside uh, there's something very, very ugly. At the end of 23, Jesus leaves the temple. There he was speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. He leaves the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives and it's just his disciples. And he's speaking to his disciples about the judgment that is to come on Jerusalem. They ask him specifically, when will these things take place? And that is where we get into some really intense stuff in chapters 24, where Jesus speaks about what's going to happen in the temple. Now, there's a phrase that occurs twice in this section that I want to point out. And that phrase is, these things will happen in this generation. So for much of chapter 23 and 24, Jesus is talking about an event that is going to happen in the lifetime of his hearers. He's not talking about a final judgment. He's talking about a judgment that God is bringing on the temple. And again, if you've been in my classes or heard many of my sermons, we're talking about 70 AD when the Romans come and absolutely destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. The temple has still yet not been rebuilt. So most of those chapters are about that destruction that is coming in 70 AD. And Jesus uses language that makes a lot of us think, oh, he's talking about the end of the world. So he talks about the stars falling from the heavens and things like that. 
And I'll just point out that many times in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, the prophets describe the fall of empires like the fall of the planets. It's a way of talking about not the end of the world, but the end of a world. A world where Babylon rules, a world where Persia rules, a world, in this case, where Jerusalem is the center of worship in the world. So the immediate context of Jesus' sermon here is not the final judgment. It is the context of judgment that is getting ready to fall on Jerusalem. But, and here's the but, and this is for us, because what's the point if, if that happened all those years ago? The point is this. Much of what Jesus has to say applies to the final judgment that is to come. It applies to the judgment that will happen when history is fulfilled. But I want, to keep, I want to keep this before your mind. God does not intend to do away with creation. He intends to restore creation. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Creation will be fulfilled, not ultimately done away with. All right? there's, there's a renewal that God intends. The best glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth is Jesus' resurrected body. That's where history is going, to a fulfillment and a restoration of creation. But before that, there is a final judgment. And that is what Jesus, in these two parables and final description of the final judgment, is addressing. He's addressing that final judgment. And we'll just say this up front. Every person that has ever lived will stand before Jesus Christ to be examined and judged. Every person. That is ultimately where history is going. And that is what Jesus is describing here. Now, I believe it it can apply to much of life, these parables. It should apply to much of life. In fact, that's the upshot of all of it is Jesus will one day judge every person that has ever lived. Just as we said in the creed, right? He comes from there to judge the living and the dead. He will come to do that. So if he is going to do that, how should we live in the meantime? That's what he's teaching his disciples. If that is where history is going, if I die before that happens, how should I live between now and then so that when that day comes, I do not have to face that day with great fear. I don't have to face that day with great anxiety. So we'll look at each one. Just I want to draw our attention to a few things in each one. We don't have time to go into great detail on each one. But I want to draw our attention to a few things on each one. First, the ten virgins. Notice, I already said that they have lamps, and that should give us a clue as to what these lamps signify. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So right from the get-go, I want to suggest that the lamps represent the way we're supposed to live. The way, with the help of Jesus, we are to put the teachings of Jesus into practice and live different lives. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the lamps. And then notice that he says that there's two kinds of virgins, foolish virgins and wise virgins, young women who are getting ready for a party. It's a good thing they're getting ready for. They're, They're getting ready for a great celebration. But five are foolish and five are wise. And again, if we think back to the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll remember when Jesus sums up all of his teaching on this new way to fulfill the law that he is bringing about with his help, he says, now there's foolish people who will listen to me and they'll go, man, Jesus is smart. Man, Jesus teaches a good sermon. 
man, Jesus, man, he, yeah, he's, I agree with him. He's right. And then they go and they don't take another thought for what he taught. He says, those are the foolish. They like what I have to say. Maybe they experienced my healing, my forgiveness, but they don't take any thought for putting my teachings into practice. And Jesus says, but the wise is like a man who builds a house on a rock. And when the storms and wind, that final judgment come, that house will stand because they've built, this person has built their whole life on the rock. The wise thought, what do I need to do to get ready if the wedding, if the bridegroom is a long time in coming? They thought ahead. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, what do I need to do? How do I need to think ahead so that I'm learning to put in practice Jesus' beautiful and gracious teachings? How do I, how do I think through how to bring these things into my life? One person has said that the teachings of Jesus, if you're, going to, if you're going to learn from him how to do them, is at least as challenging as learning another language or learning to play an instrument well. How would you structure your life if you were going to learn Arabic or Korean or Japanese? Jesus is saying that the wise take thought in the same way. How will I put my master's teachings into practice? How will I have oil How will I be prepared so that his teachings are taking shape in my life? That's what the wise do. And they're prepared to go in for this great wedding feast. So the wise are those who have a faith that is changing their lives. Okay, it doesn't say they're perfect or they've arrived, but they have a faith that is changing their lives in an ongoing way. Amen? All right, the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is difficult because this word talent actually comes into our language from the Bible. And we typically associate it with, oh, I can paint, I can play guitar, I can do these various things. But it's important to back up and recognize that the talents that Jesus is talking about is a measure of money. All right, so we need to just start and go back and get into the economics of what is going on here. So there's a master. He has several servants and he's going away for a long time and he leaves his money in his servant's responsibility. He entrusts these talents to them. So a talent is roughly 1,000 pounds of precious metal. So think about that. 1,000 pounds of silver. I checked the other day and that would be about $20,000. Gold, a lot more. All right? Think of it another way. One talent is about a lifetime's wages for back then. So we're not talking about 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 10 bucks. We're talking about a lifetime worth of money that this master is entrusting to his disciples. All right? Uh, It's an enormous treasure that he is putting in their charge for them to do with and to to do business with. So I think it's important, again, these talents that Jesus is talking about, we can say it's actual money, but another way to look at it is just any opportunity you have in life. The next day you have is a trust given to you by God. The relationships that you have are a trust given to you by God. 
Certainly your property ultimately doesn't belong to you. It's something that is, belongs to him and that he gives to you as a trust. And I want to suggest ultimately that we shouldn't think of our gifts and our talents so much as we should think of the treasure of the gospel itself, of Jesus' teaching on the way to live a flourishing life with his help. That is the treasure that he entrusts to us. What are we doing with it? I often refer to the master class. Everybody's seen commercials for the master classes. Has everybody seen these? Some Martin Scorsese, these master classes are Martin Scorsese teaches film or Julia Child isn't alive, but some famous cook teaching cooking, right? Imagine how much would you pay for the best teacher in the world on these subjects to teach you? Jesus has opened a master class in life. And the question is, what have you done with that treasure that's been handed to you? How have you responded to the treasure that he gives to you? So it says that he gives to each one according to their ability. This is wonderful. He gives each one according to their ability. He doesn't demand out of everyone the same thing. He gives them the same treasure, but in different amounts, according to the ability. He's a gracious and wise teacher. He gives, the scripture tells us, everything we need for life and godliness. He doesn't call us all to bear the same crosses. But he gives to each the grace that they need to carry whatever cross they're called to carry. And it's a gift. It is grace. It is a treasure that we could never earn, that we could never buy, that he gives us in the gospel of his son. It says of the first servant that he went away immediately and did business. He went away immediately and put his master's teaching or put his master's talents to work. It's an economic term. He went and traded. He went and invested. He went and did something with it. He tried. He risked. He got to it. Right? He took the treasure that his master gave him and went out and took a risk. And lo and behold, he doubled the money that his master gave him, which is an impressive return. Right? Here's the grace that I've given you. What have you done with it? He doubles it. And notice the accolade. Notice the praise to that first servant. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I want to suggest that all of us long, we crave praise. Because we were created to receive praise from God. To receive a well done from God. As we learn to cooperate with him. As we learn to take what is precious to him and put it to work. Of course we idolize wrong praise. We we idolize the praise of people or the praise of ourselves. But in our heart of hearts we long to hear a well done from our maker with what we have done with the grace that he has given us. And notice, what is the the reward of taking what has been given to him and doing well with it? More responsibility. All right. If you ever thought heaven was going to be something sort of passive and boring, I think there's a hint here that, no, we'll have more responsibility. We'll, We'll be given more things to do, more ways to unfold, creatively unfold the goodness of God. And so notice that ominous sound. And maybe we think about this every year on April 15th. The master returns to settle accounts. I gave you 10 talents. What have you done with it? I gave you five talents. What have you done with it? I gave you the gospel of my son. What have you done with it? I gave you the greatest treasure in the world, my son, and the gift of the spirit. What have you done with it? 
And notice what the last servant does. He's afraid, and he went and he hid it. He was afraid, and he went and hid it. He wouldn't risk. He wouldn't take a chance and go and try to do. And notice what his master says to him. He has a very pious-sounding reason for what he did, but ultimately he says, you wicked and slothful servant. Take what's been given to him and give it to someone else. And notice also what the master says. He says, you could have just invested it with the bankers and gotten some interest on it. Notice, he doesn't demand ridiculous returns. A little bit of interest on the grace he invested in his life would have been adequate. Okay, finally we get to the last judgment. We get to Jesus' description of the last judgment. And even here, notice that it has a parabolic quality because he uses this image of sheep and goats. So he's, the Son of Man will come in his glory. Notice the Son of Man is that phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7 where the scripture says that the ancient of days entrusts to one like the Son of Man all authority. Notice, too, that often when the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, it says that Jesus has all authority and he is coming to judge every person. He is the one that knows justice and will set everything right. He sits on his throne and he each person will appear before him. It says that he will separate them like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Apparently, I'm not a shepherd. Anybody a shepherd? Apparently, sheep and goats can be together during the day, but you need to separate them at night because they can cause one another harm. And it's a common image of the time. And it's this image that Jesus uses for this is the final judgment for every person. Jesus will examine every person and they will be separated from him. Notice here that the shepherd image isn't just a cozy image that we take from Psalm 23, right? There's comfort in Psalm 23, but a shepherd in antiquity was also a king. And in this case, also a judge. I think the best description of the last judgment that I've ever encountered in any other place than the Bible comes from the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. If you've ever read the last battle, I want to read a little bit of that because Narnia is being destroyed. It's being actually it's going to be renewed. But every creature in Narnia comes to appear before Aslan. And as they came right up to Aslan, one or another of two things happened to them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces was changed terribly. It was fear and hatred, except that on the faces of the talking beast, the fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that suddenly they ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him. Though some of them were very frightened at the same time. And all these came in at the door on Aslan's right. There were some strange specimens among them. Eustace even recognized one of those very dwarves who had helped him shoot the horses. But he had no time to wonder about that sort of thing. And anyway, it was no business of his. For great joy put everything else out of his head. It's a great picture of the judgment that is going to come about when Jesus examines each and every person that has ever lived. 
So I want to just make a couple of observations about the last judgment scene as described here. It's a separation. It's a division between all people that will be eternal. It will last forever. And notice that they're commended or condemned for what they did. And notice what they did. They provided for the needy. They welcomed the stranger. They enacted service to others. And I think if we gather up all these images and gather up everything else that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, I think what he is describing here is lives who are seriously, if not perfectly, trying to enact Jesus' teachings. These are people who are taking Jesus' teaching seriously. And they're trying to put them into practice. Again, they're not perfect in it, but they are trying to do that. It is lives of service to the least of these that Jesus recognizes in them as a response to his teaching. As a a response to his teaching. And that is exactly what he recognizes and sees. This is what I've been looking for. It's mercy to those who are in need. It's doing good to all people. Remember what Jesus said about his father in the Sermon on the Mount? My father sends rain on the wicked and the just. That's what he sees in these people, his disciples who have responded to his teaching. The scripture says in other places, do good to all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. And it says here in Matthew that they did these things to the least of these, my brethren. They did them to the small, the insignificant that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And notice, too, that they're both surprised. Both groups are a little surprised. Neither recognized that the good service they did to others was to the Lord himself. Neither of them recognized it. One just did the good because they were commanded to do so by their teacher, Jesus. Amen? They had found his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his help, and they just did good because he commanded them to. And they didn't realize that the people that they were loving and serving, they were doing it as unto Jesus. The other did not do good because they thought no one was watching. They didn't know that Jesus was right there around them all the time, passing them by as they ignored and snubbed all kinds of people that they thought weren't that important. And so these two were divided by what they did, by how they responded to Jesus' teaching. Now, I hope, I hope that's encouraging because I don't think Jesus is teaching you had to do it all right. He's simply teaching that you have said, Jesus, you are so good. You are so smart. You are so wise. You are so forgiving. And I want to spend the rest of my life learning to put your teachings into practice with your help. Those are the ones he says, enter into life, enter into the joy, enter into this wedding feast that's going to go on forever. Amen. So may we be those who respond to the teachings of our Lord, who are being changed by our faith whose faith in him is turning into forgiveness extended and love given. So some questions. What did I do with the gospel of his son? How did I respond to it? Not just believing in it, but putting what I learned in that gospel into practice. What did I do with grace? The great grace that he's giving me. What have I done with it? Paul says, grow in grace. Am I growing in grace? Did faith become active in my life in love? Paul says the only thing that matters is faith working through love. 
Did receiving God's mercy in my life take expression in deeds of mercy? Did the forgiveness I received take expression in forgiveness extended to others? Sometimes Protestants can lean hard on certain things we see in Paul and say it's all grace, 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 all faith, 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 faith. And Jesus graciously gives us these teachings to say, no, my grace will change you. It will turn you into a different person. If you will simply get in the yoke with me and simply try, though you falter, though you fail, it will change your life. And I will welcome you in on the last day. Amen. Amen. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Let's stand up.